Let me invite you to take your Bibles and join us in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. We'll begin reading in verse 3, Ephesians 1, 3, and read through verse 14. We've chosen such a long passage because this is actually all one subject, and we want to consider it together this morning. You'll note that the very first word of verse 3 is the word blessed or blessed. And we want to consider why the Apostle is calling upon the Ephesian church and as well our church, our lives, our individual lives, to join him in blessing God. So we might title this message simply, Why Should We Praise God? Why Should We Honor God? Why Should We Thank God? So I hope today... Uh, as we look at these phrases, and there are a series of phrases that make up this long sentence, that these phrases will stimulate us. There is perhaps uh, enough wood in this pile to keep your fire lit for your entire life. So I want to encourage you to revisit this particular section again and again in the future. So let's read beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So again, I would ask the question, why should it be the pattern of our lives that we should praise God, that we should rejoice in God, that we should give thanks to God today? I would suggest that most of us, as we begin to, to borrow a phrase, count our many blessings, we have a tendency, and this is true of my life as well, but we have a tendency to think of our temporary blessings, our earthly blessings. We have a tendency to think about our, our family or our health or our financial security, or think about our basics 
our food, shelter, clothing, etc. We think about perhaps our close relationships outside of our family, thankful for a friend or thankful for a a confidant, etc. We we have a tendency to say the reason we should praise God is because of things of this earth. But that is not what the apostle does. He's not listing his earthly blessings here. So he calls the church together and he says, there ought to be a part of you. There ought to be, if you will, some aspect of your life that is constantly looking beyond this life. I would suggest to you that it's difficult to do that if that's not the pattern of your life heretofore, if that's not the way you were perhaps trained, maybe your parents, your grandparents, significant people in your life never modeled that kind of approach. Uh, But I want to tell you that these are all first-generation Christians, these Ephesians. Their parents are not Christians. These are people that have been one to faith through the ministry of the apostle or through the ministry of those one to faith by means of the apostle. So their, their parents and their grandparents didn't model anything like this. So the apostle is teaching them. Now, as you think about God, think about God in this way and bless God, praise God, rejoice in God, hope in God, thank God for these things. And you'll notice specifically he summarizes it in verse 3, and he says, he has blessed us in Christ. Note, first of all, that all of these blessings that he's about to mention, they all happen because you're joined to Christ. It is, as it were, as if that because of Christ, because you're in Christ, you now have this status. There are many relationships in our lives that profit us. We know people, or we helped by people, or we have a connection here, or a connection there, or so forth. Something as insignificant as, I, I want tickets to something, and I know a guy, and he's going to help me get tickets. Or I, I want to buy a car, and I know a guy, and he's going to help me buy a car, etc. Because you are in a relationship, the, the merits of that relationship if you will, cascade over into your earthly life. We're aware of that. That's his point here, except he's not going to talk about your earthly life. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, let's read, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Spiritual blessing. There you go. Now, there's a couple things stand out here. Number one, he's going to talk about spiritual blessings. Now, how do we How do we know our spiritual blessings except as the Bible tells us? You don't know about heaven unless the Bible tells you. You don't know about eternal life unless the Bible tells you. You don't know about the advocacy of Christ for you unless the Bible tells you. You don't know that Christ is praying for you right now except by the scripture. You don't know that Christ is doing spiritual battle for you right now, except by the scripture. And we could go on and on and on. These spiritual realities 
are real and they are true and they are applied to us, they benefit us because the Bible tells us this is so. But having said that, we have a tendency to read the Bible, to say amen, and then go off and fret about earthly things. Fret about these earthly things. Remember, the logic of Scripture is if God has given you His Son, how will He not with Him give you everything that you need? You'll note that's precisely the point that he makes here, that Christ gives us every spiritual blessing. Our takeaway ought to be that there's no second-class persons in the family of God. Nobody has closer access better access. People say to me all the time, Brother Greg, you got a direct line. You know that's true. But it is untrue that you don't. It is true I have a direct line. Because I have every spiritual blessing in Christ. And if you have Christ... You have every spiritual blessing. You don't need a preacher to do your praying. I'm going to pray for you, by the way. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But you're not second class. You're not JV. You're not the B team. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That phrase, heavenly places, is a unique uh, term. It's, it's only used a couple of times in all the Bible. And it, it, one translator has suggested that he, he likes this phrase, to high heaven, high heaven. He's quick to say, I'm not suggesting there are degrees of heaven, but his point is you have the access to the highest realm of heaven, which is the throne of God, right? The throne of God, that's the most intimate of all, if you will, realms of heaven. You have access you have every spiritual blessing in the throne room of God. Should that be celebrated in our lives? I think so. Should we praise God for that? I think so. Should we rejoice in that? Should that fuel our lives? Should it give us grateful hearts, hopeful hearts, rejoicing hearts? Yes, it should. But I want you to notice how he phrases it. There's a series of, I've always said, you know, if you want to understand what's really going on, follow the verbs. So he's going to explain at a series of dependent clauses here, uh, various things. So we're just going to follow the verbs here. I want you to note, first of all, verse 3, he has blessed us. God has blessed us. Verse 4, he has chosen us. Verse 5, he has predestined us for adoption. Verse 6, he has blessed us. He repeats that. Verse 7, he has redeemed us. Verse 8, he has lavished his grace upon us. Verse 9, he made known to us his will about us. Verse 11, he has given us an inheritance. Verse 13, he has sealed our salvation by means of his Holy Spirit. And verse 14, he, he guarantees our inheritance by that same Holy Spirit. 
I want to suggest to you that these phrases, if you will, these actions or verbs that the Lord has done for us amount to this, if you will, overwhelming evidence of reason or crescendo of rationale that we should join Paul in praising God, blessing God, rejoicing that God loves us and that He works for us, that He loves us in a way that is beyond even our understanding. He's chosen us, predestined us, blessed us, redeemed us, lavished His grace upon us, and on and on we go. I want to suggest to you that this particular section of Ephesians is unparalleled in Ephesians, and I would suggest that the Christology of this passage is only surpassed by Colossians chapter 1. If you want to read the two, if you will, the two strongest passages in the Bible on the glories of Christ, try Ephesians 1, Colossians 1. Both of these just layer after layer, word after word, phrase after phrase of great news about the work of Christ. Having said that, most of us don't. We think of Christ typically in such shallow terms. We think of Christ in very narrow terms. He died for our sins to secure our eternal life. He died for our sins so that by believing in Him we might go to heaven. And I want to suggest to you that is absolutely true. But it is absolutely only a piece of what the Bible says that is source or cause for our glorying in Christ. Why should we love Christ? Why should we live for Christ? Why should we abstain from sin? Why should we follow Him and live holy and blameless lives? Why should we do all these things? Because the more you know about the work of Christ and the goodness of Christ and the grace of Christ, the generosity of Christ and the fact that that it is an eternal love for you should give lift to your life in ways I want to suggest to you that whether God gives you another paycheck can't compare. Whether God protects you from harm in this life can't compare. It matters that you think high thoughts about God and about his son. There's a couple of things that stand out in this passage that we need to emphasize or at least celebrate together. And then I want to offer three implications or applications for our lives. I want you to note, first of all, uh, this word in verse 5, this word predestination. He uses that word again in verse 11. Now, the word predestination gives some people a great deal of pause. I'm not here to debate it or argue it except that the purpose of its inclusion here is to suggest that there's stuff going on here in the heart of God, the mind of God, that's different than mine. I haven't ever predestined anything. You haven't ever predestined anything. People say, well, I don't know what that word means. Well, I've looked it up. It means predestination. That's what it means. You say, well, I don't understand that. Well, neither do I. You want me to get in the mind of God? 
Understand that? I don't understand it. But the Bible uses it twice here. There are perfectly good words that could mean other things, but he uses this, this word. Now, again, don't be shocked by the power of God or the mystery of God. Let me give a couple of things to illustrate. In this passage, we, we have reference to the Trinity. God the Father, he's verse 3. God the Son, he's also verse 3. And then God the Holy Spirit, we meet him in this passage down in verse 13 and again in verse 14. So the Trinity is mentioned. So I would ask you, have you got your mind around God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit? Everybody got that figured out? I suggest to you, you don't. In fact, I could take you back in church history and I could tell you that there are entire councils, hundreds and hundreds of bishops, so-called, and representatives convened in councils for the purpose of debating this issue. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Let me give you another illustration. How about Jesus? Fully God, fully man. You got that figured out? You got your mind around that? Understand that? The answer is no, you don't. Because again, we've had councils that have gathered together hundreds of people who have studied the Bible and they try to explain this and come down to very words. I mean, listen, the, 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 the so-called God-man debate is as fine a frog here as you can get in theology. And the reality is we, we're straining at a gnat for words sometimes. We're, we just don't know how to handle that because our minds can't get around these things. It is shocking to us that God is so big that we can't understand him. I don't understand any of this. The Bible is long on the what and the why and short on the how. The Bible says what God has done and why God has done it. The choir just sang why God has done it. The Bible's long on the what and the why and short on the how. Now, there's a reason for that. Again, think of our uh, child-likeness, if you will. God is not like me. God is wise, all wise. I am not. I am a little finite creature. You are a little finite creature. God has told me much, but clearly God has not told me everything. And the reality is that as a finite creature, God the Father has entrusted to me that which he believes that I can understand, but he has not entrusted to me those things that I cannot understand. Deuteronomy 29, 29 tells us that God keeps the secret things for himself. So I don't understand several of these things, but I accept these things. You say, well, that's kind of gullible, don't you think? Kind of naive. No, I just believe that the Bible is the word of God and that this thing, as beautiful as it is, even with my limited understanding, makes me worship God, or it fuels my blessing of God. Blessed be God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the high places, because, and there's a list of things, and these things are great and glorious, and I don't have to understand. I don't have to understand why God loves me. I just get to enjoy it. You know, God makes clear if you will, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7, or if you can't, then I'll just read for you. Deuteronomy 7 verse 6, he is reminding, Moses is reminding Israel they're about to go into the promised land. Moses is not going with them, so he's giving them these last marching orders, and he tells them why God chose them in the first place. Verse 6, for you are a people 
holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were, it was not because of you. Not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all the peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. Have you ever noticed how hard it is to make somebody love you? Have you ever noticed how lonely it is to wish somebody loved you? I did a Q&A with the college ministry Wednesday night. And there is the guaranteed question at every college Q&A. Has to do with relationships, dating, marriage, etc. So there's some, some aspect of that and sometimes many aspects of that that come up. And invariably I, I want to say you cannot make somebody think you're the cat's meow. You can't. I spent years trying to convince Susan that I was the greatest thing. She resisted until I wore her down. You can't make somebody love you. And the reverse of that is true also. If they love you, you can't make them stop loving you. Every parent knows that in this room. You wish they would act more loving. You wish they would act more grateful. You wish they would act more aware of what's going on. You wish they would be more appreciative. You wish, you wish, you wish but it doesn't change the fact that you love. So that's the second thing we note here in this passage in Ephesians. The scripture says in verse 5, or depending on your translation, the end of verse 4, that it is in love that God works on our behalf. In love. This is the way God has always worked, whether it was Israel or whether it is us today. God loves us, loves us. And you cannot cause God to not love you. You cannot. God loves you. And it turns out his love for you is a great treasure and has a timelessness to it, as we shall see momentarily. So don't get hung up on these words that you can't comprehend but seize upon the words that you can comprehend. And this is a fact that God in love has worked to bring you to himself. He did it with Israel and he's done it always with his people. God works in love. I don't understand the high thinking of God, but I understand that which God has revealed to me. He has made me a lover so that I might love. And he's made me one who desires to be loved so that I might understand the desire to be loved, so that I might understand the work of God. Blessed be God, who in Christ, in Christ has blessed me with every spiritual blessing. 
And he has done this by means of the nature of God and the character of God and the glory of God in ways that I can't comprehend, except to say glory. You come to the end of yourself and say, woe is me. You are God and I am not. I hope that's your reaction to this passage. Thanks be to God. There's a second word here that stands out. The word in verse 7, the word redemption. We don't use that word much. I've said this before, but uh, some of us are old enough to remember stamps. You'd get these stamps when you go to the grocery store. Those of you who are young have no idea what we're talking about. Uh, basically, it's a gimmick to get people to keep coming. And, uh, and we did, by the way. We did. My, my didn't we? We would, we would go and get these stamps and get these books of stamps, and we'd cash them in for toasters and whatever. And uh, so that's the only, only reason I ever had to use the word redemption. But it's actually a term that, that makes good sense if you know the book of Ruth. You know, Ruth is married to the son of Naomi. Naomi's son dies, so now Ruth is a widow. Well, there is a law in ancient Israel called the law of leveret marriage that the next of kin to the deceased husband would redeem the wife. The wife has no identity apart from the man. A single woman is powerless. She is vulnerable. And in the society that God created, he intended that the man would protect the, the woman and she would not be vulnerable and she would be protected by means of this relationship with this man. And so the husband being gone, she's now vulnerable. And God ordained this societal system that called for her redemption. And the, the way you would redeem her is you would claim her, you would pay a price, and that you would now take her to your own home. You'll remember in the book of Ruth, uh, Ruth is a Moabite. She's a foreigner. She's not Israeli. She's not Jewish. She's from Moab. And she comes back with Naomi and she pledges her love to Naomi. Your God will be my God. Your people shall be my people, etc. A beautiful passage there in Ruth chapter 1. And in the middle of that, she now is gleaning in the field of Boaz. Now, what's interesting is Boaz is second in line as a kinsman to redeem her, but he is not first. So there is, in, in Ruth chapter 3, there is an elaborate conversation that occurs between Boaz and this guy who's first in line. Do you want to redeem her? No. I don't want to redeem her because that will jeopardize my own family. No, I won't. I don't, I don't. To which Boaz then redeems her. He pays a price, a redemption price, and she becomes his wife. So that's the narrative in a nutshell of the book of Ruth. However, what's the point? I know the story, but what's the point? The point is, of course, that God is in the business of redeeming people who don't have God. They don't have an ally in God. They don't have an avenue to God. They don't have God. That's the point. God is in the business, and he uses this earthly story to teach this 
eternal truth that God is in the business of redeeming us, bringing us to God, causing us to be his children. He uses this phrase, we have redemption through his blood. What, what is the blood price? What is the redemption price? It's not money. It is his blood. The book of Hebrews makes clear that it is the blood of Jesus that avails for us. And it's the blood of Jesus and the work of Jesus that takes us beyond the veil into the throne room of God. How did God bless us in the high heavenlies, in the heavenly place? How did this happen? This happens by means of the blood of Jesus Christ. And what is the end of that? Not that we become married to God, but rather that we receive the forgiveness of sins. It's not a small thing. Blessed be God. He has forgiven me of my sin. And I am blessed in the high places, in the heavenly places, the high heavenly places. I am blessed there, and I have every spiritual blessing. Why? Because God redeemed me by His blood. And merits for me the forgiveness of my sins. I want to suggest to you, when you're counting your many blessings, as you should, that you make sure you go beyond your earthly blessings. They are many, and they are worth recounting to God. It matters today that you are healthy. It matters today that you have food and shelter. It matters today that you have relationships that with people who love you, prize you, and treasure you. It matters. But I assure you, friend, none of that matters as much as the fact that God loves you and that He has secured for you an eternal redemption. There is no greater truth than that. So much to say, and the passage just is too long for us to consider. Let me just make three applications quickly. First of all, there is great hope for the life to come. Great hope for the life to come. As I've mentioned already, the point of this passage is not to celebrate your earthly benefits in Christ. There, there are passages that do that. Certainly those are true and real. But this passage is to celebrate the great hope for the life to come. I will tell you that we live in a culture that treasures, I would say, at times, to a fault. To a fault that this is the greatest thing God can do, that He can protect me, that He can resource me, that He can make my life comfortable, that He can make my life easy. I assure you, friends, that if, if you read the Old Testament, you will find instance after instance after instance after instance of people who, though they were completely devout, were wretched away from comfortable living. It was not because they were bad. It is because God was in His plan, working His plan after the counsel of His will. And in the midst of that, they were wretched away. Exhibit A, Daniel. Daniel is a devout follower of God. He ends up in Babylonian captivity. Why? Not because Daniel was a problem, but because the government of Israel was a problem because the people on the whole were a problem and God is bringing judgment and Daniel gets scooped up 
in the judgment. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, same story, got scooped up in the judgment. We could go on and on and on and on. Look at Esther, the book of Esther. Esther is devout, and yet she is a slave. We could go on and on and on, illustration after illustration. And yet, the contemporary view in our culture today is that God has to guarantee me a long life and a healthy life and a moderately comfortable life. That is the prevailing view. And I would say again, if that is the case, then God owes an apology to his own son who had none of those things. In fact, God owes an apology to every missionary in the 1800s who left England or later the United States and went to foreign lands and had to ride a ship for months and finally arrive. And they're in the midst of people who have no regard for God, no regard for the people of God, no respect for the Word of God. And yet they labor and they labor and they labor and they labor at the expense of the loss of their wives or their children or even their very lives. And we ask ourselves, does God owe us that? No, he does not owe us that. He does not. But what God does owe us is what he promised. And he has promised the life to come. Look at verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance. How do you get an inheritance? Well, there are attorneys in this uh, room right now who could tell you exactly how to get an inheritance. And it's not to uh, sugar up to your kinfolks. It's to get your kinfolks to make a promise. That's how you get an inheritance. If, if, or it doesn't even have to be your kinfolks. Just somebody. Make a promise. You say, well, you know, that, that promise is not as good as the paper it's written on. Well, it depends on who's interpreting the paper. It depends on what a judge says. It depends on what the probate says. It depends on what the authority says. In this case, God has authored a book to promise you an inheritance. And he has told you how he has secured your inheritance. And all that's left for you to receive that inheritance is to die. Well, nobody's ready to make that trip yet. But that doesn't mean that I don't have a promised inheritance. That, don't mean that, that doesn't mean that you don't have a promised inheritance. It doesn't mean that that inheritance is not real. It's not valid. That my heavenly father who's promised this inheritance owns the cattle on a thousand hills and is in charge of the high heavenlies. And there is no enemy, foreign or domestic, or out of this world, that shall snatch me or you away from him. So there is great hope for the life to come. We will die and win. We will die and inherit. We will die and prosper. We will die and rejoice. We will die. Thanks be to God. We will die and we will get to go to our inheritance. But so few of us calculate the metrics of that. There is great hope for the life to come. Do not live merely 
for the pleasures of this life. There's a second thing we see. And that is that there is no reason to doubt the love of God for us. There is no reason to doubt the love of God for us. Again, in verse 4, 5, depending on how your translation reads, the Bible says that God acts here in love. In love. How great is the love of God? So great that he would give his only begotten son for you. That he would die for you. That he would die in your place, in your stead. And that his blood would avail for you. That it would be applied to you. So great is the love of God that he has had you on his mind from the beginning. There's another aspect of this that needs to be pointed out. Notice in verse 9, uh, verse 8 says, He lavished upon us His grace in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will. Now, we have talked about this word mystery before, and we will talk about it again because Ephesians chapter 3 is all about mystery. He's going to basically spend the, the entire chapter 3 talking about what he means by this. I will not belabor it, but here's the, here's the quick of it. The quick of it is that God in the fullness of time has a plan and that he is unveiling that plan incrementally. So we read Genesis 1 and we see how God works in the beginning. And then we read Genesis 2 and Genesis 4 and Genesis 10 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 and Genesis 22 and Genesis 37 and, and on and on. And we, we read the Bible and there is a gradual unveiling so this word mystery has reference to this unveiling. The, the final unveiling is the apocalypse, otherwise known as revelation. The word revelation translates the Greek word apocalypse. So what is the apocalypse? It's the final unveiling. It's the final revelation. It's not multiple revelations, by the way. It's only one. There's one revelation. It's the ultimate revelation. It's the final revelation. So the Bible is this progression of this mystery being unveiled. Heretofore, we, didn't, we looked forward and we didn't understand. We don't see it. We don't, we don't calculate it. We don't apply it to our lives. He, he says, God has lavished His grace upon us in all wisdom, making known to us the mystery of His will. That unveiling is happening before our very eyes, and it is the inclusion of all the people, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. At the name of Jesus, every tongue and every tribe may have the access to God. They have the means of salvation. There is no reason to doubt the love of God for us, because the love of God is so great. Listen to me. It is not that God simply loves but that God has a complex love. My love, my love, your love, is often entirely weak. Our love is often conditional. I love you because, I love you if. If you do this or don't do that, I love you. I love you because you do this, because you don't do that. That's so typical of man's love. And all of us have been guilty of couching our love in the conditional circumstances of others. 
But God doesn't do that. Never has God done that. Not His love. So there's no reason to doubt the love of God. Well, so I've, you know, I've been a sinner. <laughs> Have you read the Bible? I mean, there's some pretty bad sinners that came to God and figured out He loved them. Well, you know, I've, I've done a lot of things I can't forgive myself for. Well, this is not about you forgiving you. This is about God forgiving you. There's no reason to doubt the love of God. He paid a price for you. And you're his child. He's adopted you. He says that here in this passage. And therefore, there's no reason to doubt the love of God. There's a third thing. And that is that there is no doubt, no reason to doubt the sovereignty of God in the affairs of men. I want you to notice these phrases. These are not the kind of phrases that we can use because we're not God. But you'll note these phrases. Verse 4, he talks about before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, he talks about his purpose. Verse 9, he talks about his purpose. Verse 11, he talks about his purpose. Verse 10, he uses the phrase, the fullness of time, as if there's a plan. And there are, if you will, benchmarks for the plan. And when you come to this benchmark, bang, the plan is unveiled. Then in verse 14, he says, and I guarantee it. Guarantee it. So there's no reason to doubt the sovereignty of God over the affairs of men. You say, does that mean that God's in charge of the evil of men? Of course not. That's not what it means. Somehow in the sovereignty of God, he allows the insurrection of men, including this man and you and you and you and you. God allows our sin. God works all things after the counsel of his will. He causes all things to work together for our good. Thanks be to God. Even God is at work in the midst of our tragedy, in the midst of our rebellion, even in the midst of our insurrection. God is nonetheless at work. There is no reason to doubt the sovereignty of God. God knows what he's doing. He's working a plan. He has a plan. He's working his plan. And his plan includes me, includes you. And so therefore, we should be people of hope. We should be people of of confidence. We should be people of faith. We should be people of joy because God is working uh, all things after the counsel of his will. I am uh, greatly moved by several stories in the Old Testament. I off quote these and I realize that you get tired of hearing about them, but I, I, I love the story of Samson. Samson is a, a tragic figure to many and some have said wrongly, I maintain, that Samson is so tragic that he is lost. Quite the contrary, if you believe that, you have to reject the book of Hebrews, which says Samson is a man of great faith. You say, well, Samson got this woman problem, and you know, he's, he's a man of war, he's arrogant, he's proud. You know, well, first of all, be careful assigning motives. You don't quite know all that. The Bible never says that about Samson, by the way. The Bible never says that Samson is arrogant. However, preachers have said that. So you may be shaped by that. Nonetheless, I love Samson. I think Samson is a, a great uh, figure. And in the end, you, you know what happens. He, has this, he's, he loses his hair. Of course, they cut his hair. And he loses his strength. And he's in a place of weakness. And they gouge his eyes out. And now he's blind. 
And of course, they treat him as a toy. And they mock God because of the weakness of Samson. Interesting how you can go from being the one that gives praise to God because of your strength to being the one that is the source of mocking of God by means of your weakness. Interesting how Samson's life is quite a, quite a study there that you could dig, dig into. But having said that, Samson asked God in the end, God help me serve you. Even in my weakened state, help me serve you and give grace as it were. And so Samson, of course, pushes these two pillars, the roof falls, and the scripture says that thousands of Philistines were gathered on the roof of this great structure, and they all come crashing down, and they die. And in the end, the sovereign God and his name is vindicated. It's not about what we can see right now. It's about what God is doing beyond what we can see. There is no doubt and no reason to doubt that God is sovereign over the affairs of men. This passage tells us he is. This passage says, praise God that he's greater than all the affairs of men. We want to alleviate suffering. We want to alleviate injustice. We want to work as salt and light in the world. And we must, we will, until God comes, we will. But in the end, it's not about our success. It's not about our strength. It's not about our money or our resources or our time or our energy or all that. We will give an account for our personal accountability for our investment. But nonetheless, even when we are not faithful, God is faithful. He is faithful to his promise. He is faithful to his people. And he is faithful to his plan to accomplish his will on earth and ultimately to bring his people home. Thanks be to God. There's no reason to doubt the sovereignty of God over the affairs of men. We trust God. We hope in God. We cling to God, and we ask God to work through us. Let us be faithful. Let us be faithful until we die. And let us not make excuses. But even when we are weak, God is not. And let us be bold to thank God and to rejoice in God and hope in God today. Our God is doing all of this for Him, for His name, for His glory. And ultimately, as we shall see, afresh in the book of Ephesians, for our good. Let me conclude by just telling you one thing. Eventually, he's going to turn his affections to the church, and he's going to point out how all of this applies to the local church. I delight in the book of Ephesians because the book of Ephesians reminds us that none of this has nothing to do, or all of this has everything to do with this local congregation. If you cut us, this is what we are supposed to bleed. We're supposed to bleed, praise God, hope in God, trust in God, cling to God, thank God, celebrate God, because God is for us. And he is for us in ways that are beautiful. 
He has chosen us. He has adopted us. He has redeemed us. He has guaranteed our salvation. (laughs) On and on. These verbs are just beautiful. And this is the kind of church that God intends his church to be today. May it be said of you, may it be said of me, may it be said of us. And we are the people of God pursuing God together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our hope is not in man, but our hope is in you. Our trust is in you. Our confidence is in you. Thank you. This passage reminds us so beautifully and so vividly of the work you've done for us. We have many questions about many things, and certainly this passage um, has a few. But Lord, let us not stumble over what we cannot understand at the expense of what we already understand. We understand that you are at work in our lives to bring us to salvation and ultimately to bring us to glory. And that because of that, and because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that salvation is guaranteed. How we love you, Lord, for giving us this blessing. We bless you today. We celebrate you today. We hope in you today. And we cling to you in worship. Our God is God, and there is none other. Thank you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.